You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Well, why don't you follow the federal law which ordered uh, desegregation? I am. It ordered oh, you're a fool. You're a fool. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ruben Askew, who would succeed Claude Kirk as Florida governor, knew the moment when he was certain he was going to have a good election night. And it was the moment when he realized he was running against a hand. It was 1970. President Nixon comes down for a big appearance for Congressman Bill Kramer who is running for U.S. Senate. Claude Kirk shows up. Ruben Askew, as a Democrat telling the story, said he has no idea if Kirk was invited or not. Of course, he thought Kirk had every right to be there. He was not only the incumbent governor, but he was running for his own re-election. Yet he wasn't expected to show up. But in Kirk's style, he shows up anyway. Okay, what can you do but invite the governor up to the podium And so they do. And the president holds up Congressman Kramer's hand up into the air and grabs Claude Kirk's hand and holds it up into the air. A V for victory. And everybody cheers. When they did the TV commercials, they showed Nixon holding up Bill Kramer's hand and showed Bill Kramer on the one side. But then on the other side, they had cut Claude Kirk out of the TV commercial with Nixon. There was just a hand. It would be the events of 1968, 1969, and 1970. One big particular event in each of those years that would turn Claude Kirk from the people's choice. It's an amazing politician, favored for his re-election. It would be three significant events, each of which we're going to talk about here, that would change his position to someone who was having a difficult time against a relatively unknown state legislator. We'll get to that. It sure starts off good. The thing about sin, you have to go out and test sin now and again. Then you'll know where the lines are. Polluters don't like our policies, they can move to the Bahamas. When I came to office, I looked around like a general with no troops. They told me, Claude, you've got 67 sheriffs to enforce law. Well, 65 of them were corrupt. Getting elected doesn't make you a politician. I proved that. I got C's in school. C's were all I got. I thought C was for Claude. I didn't know that there were such things as A's and B's. My parents both worked for the railroad. If I hadn't been governor, they would have paved over Tampa Bay. I believe in leading with a karate chop to the groin. The press can't impeach me, and they don't understand it, and they don't like it. 
I haven't done anything anyone else hasn't done. Kirk said a lot, and in a way he answered a lot of questions, but he also avoided answering others. He leapt at the oddball questions that could fill newspaper pages. Governor, would you like to ask Bobby Kennedy for help getting Democrats to have their convention in Florida this year? I'd hug him. Governor, I'd hug Bobby Kennedy to get the convention in Florida. I'd hug him till he signed on the bottom line. Governor, where does the money go for people who donate to your governor's club? In my pocket, I guess. Governor, what will you do after the governorship? Dictator. But all this was getting attention. And there's a way to look at this attention craving. He was ego sure. There's kind of a mixed debate. Some people feel he was kind of much more quiet before his governorship run. And that he was told to do some of this. And he followed the advice and amped it up to compensate. There's a kind of psychological analysis of it that I won't pursue too much. It's not my specialty. But other people are doing similar things at this time. Spiro Agnew was doing some similar things as vice president, calling reporters by racist names and pejoratives, calling out the media, attacking hippies and any kind of activists. It has all of these negatives when you become this type of politician. But it conjures up a political energy as well, and the press just cannot not cover it. He can get the press, Kirk, to take notice of an issue that another more dull governor could not. You're in it. You're in it for the ride. I mean, once you commit to do it, you can't slow down too much. You see that. Um, if not for one of the statements that Kirk make, I would not have discovered his story. I was doing research for the Kent State episode that he had done in 2020 and found that Marianne Vecchio, who is the woman that you see in that photograph of Kent State screaming over the body, that iconic Kent State photo. She was just 14 at the time of the photo. She had a run-in of sorts with Claude Kirk. Vecchio was a runaway from Florida who happened to be in Ohio against state. She was with friends when everything happened. Claude Kirk, who was then governor of Florida, was asked about her because she was originally from Florida. She is brought back to Florida. It says, she was planted there by the communists. Vecchio's receiving death threats unfavorable treatment from the police. Her mother says, you know, to have the governor say something like that, it's a 14-year-old. And nobody thought about that at the time. You know, the students were the enemy. That's the other side of all of this. She's better now. I mean, it's late in 1990. Marianne Vecchio was still not talking to the press. She didn't want to talk about Kent State. She's better now. She goes to all the reunions, from what I understand, from the guests that I had on Paula Stone. Anyway, that's how I'm introduced to Claude Kirk. And that's a lot of my history competitive politics. And I will find a topic within another topic. And I see that, okay, so Kirk was this kind of governor who was very showy and said crazy things and first Republican governor since Reconstruction. And this was his way of uh, making up for that he didn't have much of a party. The Florida voters at the time probably saluted what Kirk said in large numbers. A few might have been turned off more by the fact that Kirk was grandstanding than the actual statement he was making itself, which many agreed with. It's a bit of entertainment. Events like this. The governor of the state of Florida is on the state's border with Georgia. And lined up with him are a dozen troopers with shotguns in their hands. And since it's Kirk... There's a reporter or two. They hear the sounds coming. Motorcycles. 
This is from the Orlando Sentinel. They came across the desert through Texas and Louisiana, this motorcycle gang. And when they reached Alabama, George Wallace was supposedly there at the state line, smiling as he watched them roll on. And when they reached the Georgia border, Lester Maddox, governor of Georgia, was there. Same smile. Claude Kirk and his deputies armed with shotguns were at the border waiting. Morning, gentlemen. Claude softly spoke as to, to the leader of the pack. Nice day. How come you all happen to be here? The leader of the bicycle gang has this long earring. There are some buddies of ours in jail in West Palm Beach. Well, young feller, ain't no way you're going to get anybody out of jail. We run a peaceful state. People don't like to be disturbed. There's some old folk in Palm Beach. They don't like to be disturbed. And what if we try it? We welcome any visitors to my state. But you are not visitors. Y'all ain't welcome. Are you really saying you're going to shoot us if we cross with those shotguns? Claude Kirk says, I'm saying if you cross that state line, we will make you wish we had shot you. The leader of the pack consults with the others, and they turn around. As far as anyone knows, they went back to California. It all stems from this. They were known to be coming to support, perhaps to rescue their brothers. Motorcycle gangs were seen as fostering crime. It all stems from this. A woman had been found by police, and she comes to the hospital saying that she fell on two nails. They just happened to be in the middle of her hands. And it comes out that, I mean, it looks like a crucifixion. And it comes out, a member of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club, her boyfriend, had nailed this woman, 18 years old, to a pole because she didn't give him her money. She's okay enough, but this story is national story. Now Kirk declares war on motorcycle bums. Kirk's publicity-generating power does have some influence. It's a cross-country manhunt. goes all the way to San Jose. The boyfriend and three other members of the outlaws are captured, booked on aggravated assault charges, and jailed. These incidents where Kirk would confront people. There's another one where he goes to a Florida campus and confronts members of the Students for Democratic Society, the SDS. And just like he had done with Rap Brown before, he doesn't stop the rally from happening, but it sure dissipates the oomph. He does this all over the state where there's someone of an activist nature speaking. None of this, though, is what Askew's talking about. None of this is what led to eventually to Kirk's political situation. This is actually what put him on the upward spin. All of this kept Kirk's popularity high in his first year. It's not that stories aren't starting to come out at 67, early 68. They are. He's using the Florida Development Commission in particular. The agency is supposed to promote Florida to send Kirk political telegrams. That's audited. He has employees there diverted to work for him. He says that you have to handle Kirk business before you handle FTC business. That's audited. The Learjet bills add up. The slush fund that he has. That's not taxpayer money, but where to, what's the source? His non-answers. Throughout 1967, there are press reports, but they seem to stay in the gray pages and among the press. Well, voters salute his attack on all of these cultural problems. When there's 
a finding that he spent FTC funds on his honeymoon trip. He says, I'm glad you found it. We need clean government, boys. He's not going to get away with that for too much longer. We'll get more into those finances. They start piling up, but initially, this is, it shouldn't be seen that these, is, the, these are immediate scandals. Here's the head editor for the Manchester Union, Michael Loeb, and you needed him at this time in Republican politics in New Hampshire, key state in the beginning of politics, that's for sure. William Loeb urges a vice presidential writing campaign for Governor Kirk. And Kirk solicits him, of course. It's not all Loeb just thinking it. Kirk goes up and visits him. It would convince Southern Democrats, if you put Kirk on the ticket, that the Republican Party had its foot in the door in the South and intended to walk in. It would also show George Wallace that there's a difference between states' rights and racism. On paper, there were many reasons to think that Claude Kirk would be a no-brainer pick for the vice presidency. He was a rare Republican from a state that was both Democrat, for the most part, in its voting, and a swing the last two elections for president. All of the leading four names, save one, Nixon, Romney, Rockefeller, were advised to add a Southerner to the ticket. Weren't that many Republicans so George Wallace would be a third-party threat this year, everyone knew it. Kirk had on several occasions cut down Wallace. Put him on a ticket with Nixon, the thinking would go, and it's all upside. Here's Ralph D. Tolendano. His election gave him a leg up. The task involved maintaining the poise of an efficient administrator in Florida while doing so with a little color and drama to keep noticed. The second part, getting headlines, was no problem for Kirk. Doing the getting headline part, doing this all in a refined way, would prove difficult. Yet Kirk had something else going for him. Support of the state chairman as a favorite son for Florida. That meant the Florida delegation initially they're going to go to support Kirk, say, on the first ballot, but ready to trade votes for Nixon or Reagan or someone like that if they come up. Majority of the Florida delegation actually supports Nixon, but they'll do a favorite son ticket. Right off the bat, eager aides make a mistake. And it's starting to be seen that Kirk and a few people in his office are not running things through the rest of the Republican Party in Florida. They run Kirk in New Hampshire for president. Not Kirk himself. It's not real. Kirk himself is going to kill that campaign in a week. They just want to float it for a week. That's the whole idea. Just enough time to get his name in the press, to get that talk. That'll help him get the second spot. It's pretty clear now Nixon has it locked up but could still fumble. So the second spot is probably where the opportunity is. Entering New Hampshire's. Not a good move, William Sapphire thinks. Sapphire was the advisor that was hired. Nixon's people don't want any surprises, and you're just giving him a problem, a surprise here, even if it's a minor one, and even if it's only a week. Just a bad look. Something else. The Florida GOP is not unified anymore after a few months after Kirk, and it comes down to his ambitions. It's pretty clear that the delegates that Kirk backs for the state delegation to the National Convention are Kirk or Bus type delegates. In other words, no, they're not going to trade their vote later for Nixon, from favorite son Kirk to Nixon or Reagan. They're going to hold for Kirk till the very last ballot. 
That's not what Murfin, who is the party chair, Kramer, who's a significant congressman, has already had it with Kirk. That's not what they want. And the party chair actually runs his own slate of delegates and leaves Kirk's. It's not pretty. Eventually, it gets compromised, but it does lead some hurt feelings. Usually, a governor of a state would be the traditional chairman of the delegation at the convention in Miami Beach. Certainly, Kirk had scored this big victory by helping to seal the deal to bring the convention to Miami Beach. There's other reasons. It's got a nice convention center. It's a desirable place to go. It's really good for security because it's on an island. This is a time when that's important. You could say, given where the Democrats held their convention in Chicago and the problems there, that might have convention location was really important in the election of 68, side point. The governor of Florida in this case is replaced as the chairman. He's not even the chairman. He's just simply a delegate. That means all he's going to do is make a welcome speech. Uh, the national politics also aren't in necessarily in Kirk's favor here. Nixon becomes the one. Pretty much a solid choice at the time you're getting to Miami Beach. Yeah, there always could be something that happens, but he's got it locked down pretty much by the end of 67. Romney has a disastrous TV interview. Nixon gains more delegates from that. Reagan just isn't running too much of a campaign. He's just kind of floating his name. So you're not dealing with a person who needs something from you. Kirk seems to misunderstand all this doesn't know national politics. He thinks Miami will go past a single ballot to multiple ballots at the convention. Then he'll get a chance to play kingmaker. Like most things, Kirk had a fantastic story. It was a Kirk relative, after all, who had placed the newspaper advertisement in California for congressional candidate Nixon that got him going. He himself, Kirk, raised money for Nixon when he lost in 1960 and wanted to run for governor in 1962. Raise somebody from some insurance folks for him. All these connections to Nixon, he's my bud. Here's Edmund Kalina. To be VP, Kirk needed to ingratiate himself with Nixon being humble and supplicating. He needed to solidify the state GOP, and he needed to be patient. He was none of the three. As one of his aides said, Kirk drove the political process like a tractor trailer. Instead of the Ferrari, it was... As we said, he started to break with the GOP. Well, this has two roles. One is you've got your own problems because they're the people whose votes you're going to need to make something happen at the convention. But also, let's not be kidding ourselves. Nixon is watching that process and process and saying, you can't even control your own state. Governor Kirk had also tried to run Nathaniel Reed, his environmental aide, against William Kramer in the Florida in the race for delegates. It's a stupid move. Kirk said he challenged the result all the way to the floor of the convention. It's something Reed doesn't even want to be part of, even though he's a supporter of Kirk, and he drops out. So then Kirk flies up to New York and meets with former VP Richard Nixon. I'm keeping my options open, is what Nixon tells Kirk. And he says a little more. He says of, to Kirk, he could be the VP nominee. It's not out of the question, but it's not likely. Kirk then asks Nixon who was under consideration. Nixon refused to say. Kirk read this correctly that he was out. Per Edmund Kalina, when disgruntled, Kirk lashed out. This time he did with his most controversial action of the year. And nobody knows. 
what he's about to do next. His own aides have no idea where the governor is. They're in Tallahassee and people are looking for him. They have no idea where he went. And when they turn on the news reports, they hear that Kirk had flown to Baltimore. Nelson Rockefeller was there. And they were talking. Then on the TV sets, they see that Rockefeller and Kirk had flown together to Miami and were at a press conference. Claude Kirk endorses Nelson Rockefeller. On the plane down, he had extracted from Rockefeller, didn't want to initially give it, his pledge that Kirk would be the nominee for vice president if Rockefeller won the nomination. It was not a very good press conference. Kirk admits to reporters, I've committed a certain amount of political Harry Carey here with this decision. That was an understatement for most observing politics. Rockefeller had few delegates, no chance. Nixon's people were now furious. The Florida delegation was split, if you could even call it that, about 80% for Nixon to 20% for Reagan. Nobody but Kirk was now for Rockefeller. Rockefeller was the antithesis of everything Republican conservatives in the party stood for. Still, Kirk kind of thought he was in that third dimension of chess here. Nixon wouldn't win on the first ballot. And if he didn't win on the first ballot, Nixon would collapse. Then there'd be a scramble. Reagan couldn't win. And then Rockefeller, with Kirk helping him, would emerge. Tonight... I again proudly accept that nomination for President of the United States. It was his first national power play, and it was a mistake. Nixon won that convention easily, and he picked Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew. He was a lowly county commissioner, what Kirk said about Agnew. Now, we know the hindsight. We know the history in blowing his chance to be on that ticket. In 68, Kirk had a real chance to become president because if Nixon had kept him on the ticket in 72, and assuming he didn't do anything as corrupt as Agnew had done, Kirk would be vice president when Nixon resigned. I'll tell you what Kirk said later, years later. If Nixon had picked me, he wouldn't have had to resign. Nixon had two choices. It was either Howard Baker or me until Aristotle Onassis got involved and said he wanted a Greek vice president. So he picked Agnew. There's no one that substantiates that story. So what do you got now? I mean, let's talk about this politics because we've got outraged GOP legislators. We've got an outraged congressman. Now it's like, well, you know, once Kirk endorsed Rockefeller, he gave up on our support. But Kirk's not uh, inactive. You know, no matter what people think of him, the one thing he can still add is that he's a Republican in the South. And so he goes to Alabama. He goes to other places. And he campaigns against the third-party campaign of Wallace. But he's hunting for something else, something to gain his leverage back. And he finds it. The Constitution of Florida was revised in 1969 during Kirk's term. The process had started before he got there, but he is influential in the process. And it's a good thing that it got revised in the 1960s, because the last revision of the Florida Constitution was 1884, and it was a clunky governmental system with lots of agencies and a cabinet that had more authority, or at least together had more authority than the governor. Then they had a legislature that met 60 days out of the year. No one was happy with this. They sometimes were meeting more now, but something else. Those legislators were paid just 1200 bucks. And in case you're thinking, 
well, this is 1969. Uh, no, it's still pretty low, 1200 bucks. That's like 12000 in today's dollars. So as part of this constitutional process, there's a commission that will recommend salaries of all government officials, including the governor and the legislators. The idea of a salary increase is to convert Florida from a state with a part-time legislature to a full-time one. And it comes from the GOP. They're leading this. Republican Don Reed is the minority leader. There's a broad consensus across the parties for House Bill 795, which will raise salaries to $12,000, so more than $100,000 today. That's about double the salary of the average U.S. citizen in 1969. But there is something else that isn't well known, and that's that the bill also gets rid of expense funding that legislatures can claim, which for some legislators can be as much as $600 a month. So it gets rid of that, except that's buried. What people see is the tenfold increase. Newspapers come out. Now, the Orlando Sentinel says this is a terrible idea. The Florida Tribune. These are the more conservative papers in Florida. Kirk does not comment on this legislation while it's pending. But behind the scenes in Tallahassee, legislators, including and especially Don Reed, the minority leader, believe that they have a firm promise from him not to veto. There's one occasion where they meet at Duck's Nest, the governor's residence, in Palm Beach in April 1969, right before the vote. And what's said is a source of controversy, but Don Reed, decades later even, would say he had a firm commitment from Kirk. Was it a wishy-washy commitment? Absolutely not, his recollection. We discussed specific numbers. He would not veto unless it went over a number, and 12,000 was in that range. Kirk insisted till his last days that he made no such promise and just said, that's your business. Lieutenant Governor Osborne, who was also there, Republican, also remembers there was some type of commitment. Osborne tells Democratic legislators, don't worry, I talked to Kirk. Reed makes a speech on the floor of the House. They pass the bill. They wouldn't move on it without those assurances. And once they do, there is an uproar in the papers. It's the size of the increase all at once. So now there's this period, it it arrives at Kirk's desk, he doesn't say anything, he asks to speak to the legislature. When he does, he not only announces that he will veto this pay raise, but he attacks the legislators. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. People want to know why legislators can come here and make laws for Florida but stand apart from them. Why the legislature can enact laws affecting one business 
and one industry after another, while some of the members may hold positions in private life that enable them to profit from their passage. He's not just talking about pay raises anymore. He's expanding his attack. They want to know why legislators can put members of their family on the payroll. Even though his father works for the Florida government, put that aside. There ought to be a conflict of interest law. I'll sign that. Then he goes on to burn his own GOP members. I do not approve of legislators making deals in my name. On the TV sets of Florida and in the newspapers, on the streets from Palm Beach to Miami to Tampa, people are cheering at this governor taking on the corruption that seems absolute. And yet in Tallahassee, in that building, there was a feeling of betrayal from both parties. A few members had to be held back from taking a swing at Kirk as he stepped from the podium. He led us into a trap. He set us up. He didn't just go back on his word. He made sure we voted for it and then set us up. Of all the people who are mad about this, certainly the Democratic leaders are mad. The GOP in the legislature are particularly mad. Don Reed makes another speech now and says, for those of you that took the word of Kirk, my apologies. It's not the pay we're upset about, one member said. The bill wouldn't have passed without his word. And so the Florida legislature and the Senate, they move to override it, and they do it quick. It is overridden 24 hours after this TV speech Kirk makes. The popular, the public reaction be damned. This is an issue within Tallahassee. Here's what the Speaker of the House says. When the pay bill came up, I didn't ask a single one of you to vote for it. Now, with this override, it's not about pay. It's about the integrity of the legislature over a governor who thinks he's a king. 88 to 20 in the House, 35 to 10 in the Senate. They quickly override Kirk's veto and pass the pay increase. Kirk now has an issue to run on. The other part of the Constitution that's going to get changed is the Florida governor is up for re-election, and Kirk plans to use that clause. He was for decades later known as the man who fought the pay raise and earned that reputation. And he was once again in the people's eye. But something strange was happening in the party politics. And the Florida GOP feels betrayed. And also, he got, you know, when I say 20 in the House voted to sustain him and 10 in the Senate, many of them were Democrats. So this odd combination that the people that were the angriest with him were the Republicans. Well, it's a Kirk issue. It proved difficult to make it a party issue. And many Democrats were able to share in the spotlight of saying, yeah, I voted against that pay raise as well. One of them is a young legislator in Pensacola named Ruben Askew. Kirk's not done. When they override him, he fights it all the way to the Florida Supreme Court and is defeated every step of the way. He then refuses to sign the vouchers to implement the pay raises for a while till the court forces him. Then he compounds the problem by announcing his support to get rid of the Florida Senate and have a unicameral legislature kind of like Nebraska does. And he'd support primaries against Republicans who had voted to override his veto. But even the the boom in his approval over this pay raise issue doesn't last forever. And as he's eyeing re-election, he sees another issue. (laughs) 
and finds it when the Manatee County School Board is forced by U.S. District Court to integrate its school. Forced to do so using a limited number of plans that the court approved. They try to delay. They've delayed it as long as they can. The judge says you have to do it now, April 1970. The only way for the county to integrate its schools, because different populations have schools in different places, is to bus students. So the county school board quickly develops a program and plans to implement it. They ship books to the various schools. They prepare the buses. Here's Ralph Detolion. Until then, Kirk had positioned himself as a friend on civil rights. He had made a point helpful for civil rights activists of linking actions taken by George Wallace or other recalcitrant leaders throughout the country, that breaking the law was breaking the law, whether it was a criminal stealing a purse or a government official not listening to a court order. In any case, the role of the governor here should have been pro forma and no role other than public opinion. And he seems so far to be using this in a good way. He even assured the court, we don't brandish axe handles in Florida. If we can get racial balance now, you'll see Floridians first in line to get it. He had said that as early as January 1970. Now, Kirk had asked for a delay in the Manatee School Board issue, a delay in the busing, but he seemed to be in no mood to push it further until Kirk's re-election chances seemed to be dwindling. Edmund Colina, one of the most supportive of Kirk accounts, says, Kirk, with the urging of his political advisors, almost certainly decided to seize upon this issue as a vehicle for re-election. And now, improbably, Claude Kirk flies to Brandonton in Manatee County, fires the school superintendent, fires the entire school board, charging them with incompetence and malfeasance for following the court order. Who's the new school superintendent that he appoints? Why, Claude Kirk. And using masking tape, he puts his name up on the sign as school superintendent for reporters to see. Reporters ask him, how long are you going to be a school superintendent for, Governor? Till tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. Now, the judge in this case, Judge Krentzman at the district court, deals with this quickly. He reinstates the school superintendent. He reinstates the school board. And he ordered the governor of Florida to appear before him to face contempt of court charges. Kirk leaves his lawyer there and flies back to Tallahassee and addresses the legislature. This was an illegal plan. Illegal, illegal, illegal. He had now elevated the debate. A court can push around a school district, but it can't push around the governor of Florida. I have supreme executive authority. I ask for my day in court, in the Supreme Court of the United States. Confrontation's been turned on its head. I am the man asking for my day in court. And that's what he'd say during the next series of days when he was asked about it. I just want my day in court. But he had a court summoning him, and he was ignoring it and its contempt charge. He goes to the Manatee County School Board Administration building with 70 armed lawmen, the Sheriff's Bureau, Highway Patrolmen, others. He once again suspends the school superintendent and the school board and demands a Supreme Court hearing. He makes another comment. 
if federal marshals enter the building, there might be shooting. That's a direct quote from the U.S. attorney. His quote to the press is, physically, we will resist only to the extent they attack us. We will meet whatever comes to us, hopefully by turning the other cheek. There is a number of people in Manatee, parents, who are very happy with this decision. They tell newspapers, finally, someone's sticking up for us, someone who's of such a high office. Uh, He's a hero in Manatee County to, to some extent. There is even a Democratic state senator, Jerome Pratt, not normally a Kirk supporter, who says that if he goes through with this, you know, he'll have his support. And I am the man who asked for law. I am the man who asked for his day in court. I am the man who pleads for hearing of my grievance. Uh, marshals are allowed in the building to subpoena his men. Krentzman holds a hearing in absentia. The Kirk won't show up to his courtroom, finds that he is in contempt of court, and places a 10000 a day fine on Governor Kirk, but does say... If you stop this by Monday, you know, the fine won't take effect. Well, why don't you follow the federal law which ordered uh, desegregation? I am. It ordered oh, you're a fool. This is the number one compliance state in the nation. And I tell you that you can tell your broadcasters in New York, as soon as they comply, as much as Florida has, as the number one state in the nation in compliance, that's the whole difference. Something else is going on. The president is not the president who was in office when Kirk started his governorship, Lyndon Johnson, that he could rail against. The federal government is now led by a GOP president, Richard Nixon, and his Justice Department gives Kirk a call and tells him in the strongest terms he'll get no support from them and must discontinue. Sunday night, he decides not to contest this, so he doesn't get hit with the fine. Kirk and the lawmen leave the building. I won anyway. The Justice Department's going to look into this and suggest changes in the order. Figures he could get away with saying on it. I mean, it looks good for voters. He also cast aspersions on the judge, saying that the judge is only in his position because he was able to get a divorce that no one else could get for a wealthy benefactor. He got put in that job. Well, here's the thing. The Justice Department doesn't even want to be associated with this. They file a memo to the Supreme Court saying Kirk was committing unjustifiable conduct, inadmissible conduct. They make it clear to the district court that there is to be no alteration of the plans. The Justice Department will not suggest any. For eight consecutive days in April 1970, the New York Times featured Claude Kirk on the front page. This manatee story had its benefits to him. It also had its downsides. He received letters from GOP members who were that said, "Why are you doing this? You you spent you know three years convincing people you weren't George Wallace, only to become him now." It portrays him this manatee incident as as an opportunist. In fact, Jerome Pratt, the state senator who had supported him, now that he sees him backing down, says he's just a grandstander. He committed the greatest fraud in political history of Florida. And something Pratt says, who's a conservative, he says all Democrats, liberals and conservatives, north and south of the state, have to get together and beat this man. That Pratt comment is going to do a lot to unify the Democratic Party that hadn't been unified when Kirk ran in 1966. 
What else can we say about this? He's going to use the busing issue in his 1970 re-election campaign. I'm voting for Claude Kirk. I'm a mother with twins, and I think it's completely asinine to send them away to a school five miles away, and there's a school right in the neighborhood. I want my daughter to go to the school that she's going to, the school that we live by. Let's keep Kirk. Claude gets things done. He's a man who feels for the children and for the people of this state. Here's what Kirk said decades later. There was nothing wrong with having a contest about forced busing. That was a serious matter. Who the hell is right now anyway? Who is for busing today? Why should you take a little child out of his or her home on the north side of Jacksonville in the winter and bust them an hour and a half to some damn school in San Mateo, which is probably no better than the school they left behind, and drag them back in the evening? It is important to note, to be fair, and this is one of the things that when they interview Manatee County parents who were protesting the court order, they make clear saying, we're not protesting against integrated schools. We're not protesting for segregation. We're protesting against busing. Very live issue in the 70s. You saw it erupt in the 2020 um, Democratic Party debates, right, between Kamala Harris and, and Biden over this issue of, of busing. But Joe Biden had a position where he was opposed to it, unless in this, as in this case, it came from an order of a court. But he was opposed to the federal government doing it because he was facing huge backlash in Wilmington County, Delaware, over, over the busing that was occurring. So it's a very complicated issue. Jimmy Carter's position on busing against it for the most part. The court would refine in later cases, you know, some of these, some of the busing. The court, the Congress, Justice Department policy would all change over the years to something closer to what Kirk had as his position. Yet doing it in such a public way and firing the school board for complying with court orders, you know, changed his image. I think there's no better statement of Kirk than in a few months of 1970, he earns the scorn of women and segregationists. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from a corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) 
I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Here's the Camarillo Star, California, 1970, July. It was defiance as genuine as references to himself as sovereign. Mr. Kirk ran away from the Manatee School Board controversy the moment the courts began rolling up their sleeves. However, the phoniness of his performance, it escaped the bigots, the hate groups, and the white supremacists, and even the more moderate Wallaceites who are now beating the drums for Claude Kirk's re-election. Some did, but not George Wallace's hometown newspaper Montgomery Advertiser. The same old Claude Kirk, it wrote. Those who remember Claude Kirk as a cut-up back in his school days in Montgomery will dismiss his hit-and-run intervention in the Manatee School Desegregation case. His showboating now seems the same as then, a lark to get publicity. As for the contempt of court charges, we'd tell the court, don't worry, we know Kirk. It was done in a spirit of japery, not malice. At the same time, there's an incident where Claude Kirk is addressing a PTA group in Daytona Beach, and the governor asks if the local newspaper had a reporter present. Woman reporter raises her hand. It would seem to me the editor of the newspaper ought to care a little bit about the fact that the governor is here to talk about education. But the local journal sends a lady to report the most important facts. The lady was named Jennifer Balch, and she was an award-winning news journal writer on education. Claude Kirk would hear it from women up and down the state and across the nation in letters that he received. Martha Musgrove, the regional director of Theta Sigma Phi, wired Kirk, demanding an apology. Her group represented women journalists. Kirk faced re-election with a Republican president in office. The Johnson inflation became the Nixon inflation. Terms of Nixon's law and order issue, 68, and Kirk's crime issue in 66. That was a split at best now. Nixon was two years in as president. So if there was crime in the nation, the economy, too, was owned by the Republicans, and Kirk was running on the Republican ticket. But the reality is the Florida state GOP is also split badly, and a lot of it has to do with Kirk Endorsement of Rockefeller, the pay raise and the perceived trick, the failure to consult Congressman William Kramer, the burned bridges. And so William Kramer would fuel a primary challenge against Kirk and Jack Eckerd. We probably know the, the Eckerd uh, drugstore franchise, but really big Florida at this time. He's a multimillionaire. He's willing to spend millions of dollars running against Kirk in a Republican primary. Second candidate also jumps in. So you got two people beating up on Kirk for about half the year. In fact, it goes to a runoff, which Kirk is able to win, but that's a lot of months of bad headlines, of attacks on him from his own party. Kirk uh, tells Jack Eckert after he spends $3.5 million, Jesus, Jack, if I knew you were going to spend $3 million, you could have given me a million and a half. Would have given you the office. But Kirk struck at William Kramer as well, who was running for Senate convincing Judge G. Harold Carswell to run for the Senate seat in a primary. Carswell was like a martyr in Florida because he had been Nixon's nominee to the Supreme Court. Nixon had, as promised, nominated a Southerner, and those Yankees in the Senate, perception of Florida, voted him down. 
Kirk sees an opportunity. So Carswell has to face Kramer. Except there's a problem. Nixon was the one who had asked Kramer to run for Senate as part of his 1970 lonely midterm. We talked about that in a past episode. His plan to take back the Senate. Kramer's his strong Florida recruit. And now Kirk's running someone against him. So Kirk was messing with the White House's plan to take back the Senate. And Kramer will win his primary without a runoff. And while he doesn't win the Senate, in fact, so in this race, neither of them are going to win. They're both bloodied, Kramer and Kirk. But it's not just that. Something else happens on the other side of politics. And that's that the Democrats have new faces and they come in the form of Reuben Askew. It's interesting that each time the governor speaks of restructuring education, uh, what he usually means is to abolish a Floyd Christian's job and placed the whole educational system uh, in his office. Who is a younger, pretty telegenic state senator from Pensacola, who played his political cards right. People didn't have a lot against him. The guy he beats in the primary is the Attorney General Faircloth, who just had a lot of baggage and just seemed like an old type. And Lawton Childs, who's running for the Senate against Kramer, he's a guy who wins in a surprise in a primary because he walked across the state of Florida. Walking Lawton, they called him Lawton Childs. There's, there's a lot of energy behind these two candidates. And everywhere they're running a campaign called the AC Current, Ask You Childs. And that's a pretty nifty slogan, AC Current, right? So that's the Democratic slogan. But Republicans in Pinellas County, where Kramer's from, that hate Kirk now, take this AC slogan for themselves and say, vote Ask You Kramer. So Askew's going to get a number of votes from Republicans, and he's going to go on to be governor a couple of terms. He's going to be a, si- a sign of the New South. He's going to run for president unsuccessfully, 1984. Incidentally, so is Kirk. Uh, you know, Kirk becomes a Democrat at that point and runs in the 1984 presidential primary. I mean, gets less than 1%. But in that election, for all his work on the Manatee County case, he wins Manatee. Yes, but he wins by less of a margin than he did in 1966. He had no more pull in Democratic County. He's got 10% less in Dade than he did in 1966. He also dropped 10% in Pinellas, the GOP stronghold. Kramer was getting 53% in the same county. Obviously, there was this GOP gap and defections. Here's what Kalina says. Under Kirk's guidance, Florida went from backwater to a state with a burgeoning economy. More hotel rooms than New York after the Disney deal. From uncountable number of state agencies to no more than 25. Better state law enforcement. More rigorous environmental protections. Kirk had blocked an airport that was going to be put in the Everglades once he saw the possible environmental damage. Agency heads were more scrutinized by a more powerful governor and legislature after him. As we reference, Claude Kirk will leave office in 71. He won't become governor again. He won't become vice president or president. He will run again, this time as a Democrat in 1978. And for an extra oomph in his campaign, he picks an African-American woman to run for lieutenant governor with him. He'll support Lee Iacocca for president in 1988 run his draft campaign. And then he'll join the GOP again to challenge Bob Martinez for governor in a GOP primary. He'll never get an office again. People will never forget him. In 1995, he initiates a lawsuit against local sugar companies in Palm Beach County 
seeking to ban practices that polluted the air and water. They set fires, releasing quantities of smoke and cinders and soot and other particulate matter into the air. It's generated huge profits for the defendants. It takes five years. A court throws it out. It takes five years to get it back into court in 2000. They continue the Florida Supreme Court case. It's then rejected in 2001. This is a case that's still fighting. You could bring Walt Disney down to Florida. You could bring Universal Studios down to Florida. That's nice. God bless. But until you start bringing CEOs of big corporations down here, internet people, smart people, you haven't begun. Where are they? In San Jose, in Boston. Why aren't they in Florida? Former Governor Claude Kirk would say, they've all got vacation homes here. Why won't they live here? Because we haven't worked enough on education. So what are we talking about here when we talk about Claude Kirk? Uh, you know, three-parter here. Uh, read a lot. Read a lot of articles. You know, you start to like somebody a little after you're covering them this much. But I know there are also some really bad sides. There's one editorial that comes out in Forbes magazine. Malcolm Forbes writes it himself. And it simply is three words. Three words in a colon. The whole editorial. Claude Kirk colon jerk. And that opinion is out there. And certainly if you're on the other side of the politics, like that pay raise story and things like that, you know, you could feel that way. But I think there's many reasons to discuss the story straight out. Let's, I mean, let's face it, you know, there is a person from Florida running for president. Absolutely. A comparison to be made. I don't think in personality, Kirk matches DeSantis. I don't think anything like that. I do think in a style, a certain political style of finding wedge issues, of confronting, it's there. It's also present with the other major contenders in the Republican Party right now. Um, You have in Kirk this kind of early experiment with what happens if I get elected and I don't owe anybody anything, really. Someone has the freedom to operate and you have this kind of unique politics that sometimes we all crave. What happens if I just get a headline every single day and just keep getting headlines so fast that by the time you're worried about the last thing we were talking about, I'm moved on to the next. And in a state that wasn't known for this kind of, it was kind of a easy breezy type politics. And you have a go-go governor. What else? I think in discussions of the Southern strategy, party switch, whatever you want to talk about, the way that the South became more Republican, this is an important piece of the story here in Florida because it's not as easy as someone planning something in a room and all of a sudden all the Democrats in the South are now Republicans like that. This is an evolution that happens. It's organization. Some people are very kind of liberal-minded that become Southern Republicans at least at first. It's interesting about Nixon and his presidency and how he shaped things and how his seizure of the party cropped out and shaped, you know, who would lead that party in the future. And Kirk got left behind, certainly. Could have been otherwise. He's important for understanding how things shifted sometimes from direct statements about race, perhaps, to more code words, to more, oh, I'll just talk about open housing. That's present. At the same time, Kirk's somebody who would have no issue being photographed 
African-Americans being in the slums with, with African-American leaders, interviewing an African-American for the first, which in the South is a really big deal for him. So this this combination of all sorts of things. In the end, the ego got the best of him for most accounts, even the people that, you know, this early experiment with this kind of like, well, what if you're a politician that can just do anything that they want? leads to a lot of problems because no matter how you're structured you can't do everything you want there's other people in terms of his loss in 1970 claude kirk would say democrats should thank me i forced them to straighten out and pick good candidates i didn't lose i just came in second This is part three. Hope you enjoyed listening to the series. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Give us a review. We have a Patreon. You want to support us. Lots of programs in our archive. If you want to listen to, to more, I've got hundreds. Thank you for listening.